ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 12th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The UN's top court has begun hearing a case that'll determine whether Israel has breached the Genocide Convention with its military operations in Gaza, an allegation Israel has repeatedly denied. The two-day emergency hearing before the International Court of Justice has been brought by South Africa, which has accused Israel of, quote, grinding Gaza and its people into the dust. Israel will make its case to the court tomorrow, as Michelle Rimmer reports. With the world's eyes on The Hague, thousands of people gathered outside the International Court of Justice in separate pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian rallies. Inside the court, a 17-judge bench heard details of life under bombardment for Palestinians in Gaza as South Africa laid out its case accusing Israel of committing genocide. It's a claim Israel strenuously denies. It could take years for the court to decide whether Israel has breached the Genocide Convention. In the interim, South Africa has asked the court to urgently order Israel to immediately suspend its military campaign in Gaza, something the court has said it will decide on in the coming weeks. Representative for South Africa Adila Hassim told the court Israel has breached the Genocide Convention through the mass killing of Palestinian civilians and by deliberately imposing conditions on Gaza that cannot sustain life. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry and bombs from air, land and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration and disease. Lawyers for South Africa presented videos and images as part of their evidence, which they say proves all levels of Israel's government, from the country's leaders to soldiers on the ground, have shown intent to commit genocidal acts. The issue of intent is expected to be a key element in this case. Lawyer Vaughan Lowe is representing South Africa in court. The government of Israel, not Jewish people or Israeli citizens, the government of Israel and its military is intent on destroying the Palestinians in Gaza as a group and is doing nothing to prevent or punish the actions of others who support that aim. Israel has repeatedly rejected accusations of genocide, claiming its military operation is solely focused on destroying the Hamas terrorist organisation following the October 7 attacks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has accused South Africa of hypocrisy and lies in the courtroom. We are fighting terrorists and we are fighting lies. Today, again, we saw an upside-down world in which Israel is accused of genocide at a time when it is fighting genocide. Israel is fighting against murderous terrorists who committed horrific crimes against humanity. Decisions made by the International Court are significant and technically binding for signatory countries like Israel and South Africa, but are not enforceable. This is Michelle Rimmer reporting for AM. A state of emergency is now in force in Papua New Guinea after more than a day of rioting which left 16 people dead. There's extensive damage to shops and businesses that were set on fire in the capital Port Moresby and damage too in the second largest city of Ley. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston is in Port Moresby. Tim, has a bit of calm returned to the streets of Port Moresby? 
Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, some security services overnight did report some break and enters, but the mass rioting and looting that we saw here on Wednesday evening in the capital has certainly stopped. So there is generally a, more of a sense of calm. That being said, things are still fairly volatile and unpredictable. So late last night, Prime Minister James Marape declared a state of emergency. As part of that, about 1,000 defence personnel are on standby. Police and Defence did a very high visibility drive-through of Port Moresby last night. It was something they were describing as a show of strength to try and inspire some confidence back into the community. Uh, but the main issue now will ultimately be the availability and accessibility of food and other necessities. So those have been, you know, main shops and that sort of thing. The ones that have survived being burnt down have been closed over the last two days. Police now have directed those remaining supermarkets to open this morning. Um, and they'll now have to really service the whole city. And we're yet to see if banks or fuel stations will be following suit and opening too. So with a bit of order restored, what's the political fallout from this unrest? Yeah, well, things were already tense politically now. Uh, this has just absolutely ignited the country. So in his late night press conference last night, Mr Marape was flanked by 26 MPs. Quite a scene. Those are cabinet members as well as government MPs. It's very clear now that this isn't just a security crisis for him. It's also a political crisis. A grace period where a vote of no confidence can't be triggered ends next month. So it was already widely expected he would face a challenge to his leadership next month. Now it's almost a certainty. But meantime, pressure's really mounting on him right now. Several coalition MPs have resigned from government. Uh, one MP, Keith Idahu, uh, said that he was shocked and ashamed at the level of chaos, but he felt that Mr Marape's silence and inaction to handle the situation was deplorable. Now, of course, the opposition are calling for him to resign as Prime Minister. Now, for Mr Marape, he, you know, is pointing to the politics as well. He, is, he says he's certainly not discounting the fact that there's deep political influence on this side to ensure that kind of violence does take place in the city and in the country. At his second press conference in the evening, he said he was determined to stay on. I uh, don't think James Marabee is going anywhere. Yesterday when this place was under almost house arrest, I wasn't running away. I wasn't showing any panic. I was here every step of the way. And you're dealing with this man. You're not dealing with anyone. I'm not going to run away from this place. You want to change government? Change it on the floor of parliament. Not using my people to create law, to create lawlessness and recklessness. Mr Marape has promised that heads will roll. The secretaries for finance, treasury and personnel management have all been suspended, as well as the commissioner of police. But we'll see if his will be claimed too in the coming weeks. Tim Swanston in Port Moresby. Donald Trump has left the election campaign trail for a second time this week to attend a court hearing. This time, the former president's been in New York for closing arguments in a civil fraud case. The Republican frontrunner asked to address the court but was cut off by the judge. North America correspondent Barbara Miller is following the proceedings. Barb, there were some dramatic moments in court. How did it unfold? Yeah, we'd heard ahead of these closing arguments that Donald Trump wanted to address the court, but he didn't seem willing to abide by some parameters the judge had set, which was that he shouldn't use any address for political purposes, for a campaign speech, or to launch personal attacks uh, on the judge or his staff. 
Now, Donald Trump began okay. He said that his financial statements were perfect, that he was innocent. But he did go on to call the case a political witch hunt. He attacked the Attorney General, Letitia James, who brought this case. That prompted the judge to tell Donald Trump's lawyers to control their client. Uh, the client, the lawyer clearly wasn't able to do so. The judge eventually said, look, you've run out of time. We're having the lunch break. Uh, this could all have been uh, run in a much different way. Um, so the judge who will decide this case clearly um, not impressed at all uh, by Donald Trump's brief address. Donald Trump later addressed the media. It's a witch hunt in the truest sense of the word. It's election interference. And so it's all it's all a conspiracy to try and get Biden, who can't put two sentences together, trying to get him into office. Bob, with all of his legal troubles, what's at stake for the former president? Well, the Attorney General would like to see a fine of around $550 million imposed on Donald Trump and like to see him barred from doing business in New York. That's because uh, she um, says that he inflated property values in order to get uh, favourable loan and insurance conditions. And in fact, ahead of this case being heard, the judge decided that was in fact the case, that the Attorney General had proven her case uh, and that th this trial really is just to decide what penalties he will face. Beyond that, I guess Donald Trump thinks uh, that this uh, case and turning up again here today, fresh from Iowa, where he was um, taking part in a Fox town hall last night, is benefiting his campaign. And what we're seeing again is that he really um, is almost ramping up, it feels like, his court appearances uh, uh, in order to use them uh, as campaign moments to say that all this is a political witch hunt against him. And he's trying to turn around Joe Biden's argument that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy and say, in fact, Department of Justice and the New York Attorney General, for example, there are the real threats to democracy. Barbara Miller. Voters in Taiwan go to the polls tomorrow to elect a new president, and the relationship with China is an issue that's overshadowing all others. China's been increasing pressure on the self-governed island for years, claiming it as its own territory, which it's willing to seize by force. East Asia correspondent Kathleen Caldwood has more. <laughs> In Taiwan, democracy is loud and a little bit dramatic. At a rally for the Democratic Progressive Party in the island's south, hundreds of voters turn out and chant Dong Swan. In Mandarin, it means frozen garlic, but in Taiwanese Hokkien, it means be elected. This voter says for him, Taiwan's security is front of mind. For me, the most important thing is to ensure Taiwan's sovereignty. Only with independent sovereignty can the people of Taiwan enjoy complete democratic freedom. This is the ruling party's heartland and people are here to support the current vice president, Lai Qingde. He hopes to succeed President Tsai Ing-wen. Since she was elected in 2016, Beijing has cut off official communications with Taiwan's government. Beijing calls Vice President Lai a separatist and troublemaker and has twice sanctioned his running mate Xiaobi Kim, who was until recently Taiwan's de facto ambassador to the US. Mr Lai says he wants to reopen dialogue with China if he's elected, but will continue the island's commitment to democracy and maintaining the status quo.
I hope that after I'm elected president, China will understand that peaceful development is the responsibility of both sides. I hope that China can understand the changes in the global society and abide by the international order. The main opposition party, the Guomindang or KMT, also supports the status quo, but is generally in favour of closer ties with China and wants to boost trade across the strait. The KMT stresses that if they're in charge, at least Beijing will pick up the phone. Its candidate for president is former police chief and new Taipei mayor Ho Yue. I do not have any illusions about the mainland. Regarding the risks, I believe the most important thing is to strengthen national defence so the other side will be deterred from starting a war. Traditionally, Taiwan's presidential elections are fought between these two parties. But this year, a growing desire, particularly among young people, to address issues other than the island's relationship with China has been seized by a third contender, former Taipei Mayor Ko Wenzhou. Here's political scientist from the Atlantic Council, Wen Ti Sung. With three people in the race, there uh, opens up a bit more room for discussion about other issues, such as economy, such as uh, housing prices, for example, and uh, just upward mobility challenges for Taiwan's young people. For first-time voter, 21-year-old Song Wen Shou, Mr Ko's focus on bread and butter issues appeals. The cost of living is getting higher and higher and wages are low. This kind of issue will make people not want to have children. There's a mandated blackout of opinion polls in the days before the election, but it's expected to be a close race. This is Kathleen Calderwood reporting from Taipei for AM. The worst of Victoria's flood emergency appears to be over, although residents in Shepparton are still waiting for the Goulburn River to peak. As the focus shifts to the clean-up, it's dredging up some difficult memories, particularly for people in Rochester, a town devastated by another flood 15 months ago. Oliver Gordon reports. Richard Peacock has just yesterday been able to return to his farm on the outskirts of Rochester. Still probably 60 or 70 percent underwater. His first task is to clear the water. I'm relying on a 15-inch, a 450ml culvert to try and pull half the town's water off my plant, off my farm. So it's a slow process to get what water's left on my place off. Next, assess the damage. The hay's gone. The crop that I've just sown, that lucerne crop, that's got to be re-sown, which means it'll have to be sprayed out, worked up, re-sown, and it puts you another year behind on that. So... Yeah, 20 or 30 grand probably. Richard Peacock's home was devastated by the floods that hit Rochester just 15 months ago. His insurance company has paid him out for that damage, but he's not covered this time round. We took a payout figure to rebuild our home and um, they would not reinsure. So at the moment we are uninsured. These floods aren't nearly as severe as those that hit the town in late 2022. But for a town in the early stages of rebuilding... It's tough to deal with. Rochester Flood Recovery Committee Chair Lee Wilson says many of the shipping containers and sheds holding residents, salvaged furniture and belongings have now been flooded. You just have this other event come through and what remnants you've had, what you've been able to save of your life uh, isn't in that house and it is sitting at a lower level and while this flood uh, fortunately hasn't damaged much in the way of houses but it has flooded across properties and it's damaged the remnants of your goods. And this is playing out on the ground right now. We've got we've got many people in this community that they've just lost the last of the things that they own. 
The quick succession of floods has some business owners and residents considering their future here. Some telling AM privately the Riverside lifestyle is no longer worth the risk. But others want to stay. Bridget Frawley's home was inundated in 2022 and is nearly ready to move back into. Yeah, so we're hoping for March to get back into our home, but we just kind of play it day by day and, yeah, take each kind of hit as it comes. I think we definitely want to stay in our community. But after two flooding events in quick succession, she's calling on the state government to speed up flood mitigation efforts. I would really appreciate some more information about this, just to know that, yes, something is being done and the government thinks that our town is worth saving. Rochester resident Bridget Frawley ending Oliver Gordon's report. And in a statement, the Victorian government says it's funding mitigation efforts with the Commonwealth and will always support the Rochester community. Well, there's more bad weather heading to cyclone and flood-ravaged parts of far north Queensland with a severe weather warning for heavy rain between Port Douglas and Woodjul Woodjul. It's not great news for locals still struggling with the clean-up a month after cyclone Jasper and then record rain. And while the army is now arrive to help, there mightn't be much progress in soggy conditions, as Stephanie Smale reports. There's only one way in and out of Cape Tribulation, and at the moment it's a narrow, bumpy road, flanked by metre-high piles of red dirt and debris. Cyclone Jasper and the torrential rain that followed caused huge landslides in the area, and it's been less than a week since locals have had limited travel access. Heavy machinery has started arriving to clear the road, as well as the army to help. But Lawrence Mason, who runs a general store and cafe at Cape Tribulation, says the rain will put the brakes on. The red dirt will turn to mud, and obviously in any instability on slopes that hasn't been addressed makes it very dangerous for them as well. So what are locals thinking about the kind of setback that might create in clearing those landslides? We're all fairly worried. I mean, I personally don't think we'll be back to normal until July because our business involves, you know, bus lunches and things like that. It's going to be some time before these buses are allowed on the road again. It's a tiny community of about 100 residents, give or take, but it's a heavy hitter when it comes to tourism dollars, with half a million visitors making their way through the Daintree region every year. But Lawrence Mason says his community has been overlooked. I'm just shocked the response has been so slow. I know we're a small community, but we should be as important as everybody else. And if they'd responded to the landslide faster, they would have been able to work in fine weather. Now they've finally got their act together and it's raining. Helicopters have been able to drop in essentials like a new water pump and deliver the mail. And Lawrence Mason says trucks have been getting through with food. But he says other supplies are running low. Another pinch point is we're running out of beer. You know, beer's not essential, right? But most of the locals tell me it helps them sleep at night and helps them relax after a long day cleaning up. And on a more serious note, as he braces for up to a week of steady rain and more time without tourists, he's hoping authorities will rethink their approach when the next disaster hits. I guess in the wash-up of this, we need to think about small communities and how quickly we respond to them. And it's not just my small community, but any small community in Australia that gets affected by whatever kind of disaster. He's welcomed the federal government's promise of financial support for struggling tourism businesses, but says he's still waiting for details. Stephanie Smale reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.